Well, hey guys, good to be with you this evening. If you have a Bible, please open it up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And as always, if you forgot your Bible when you came in, there's some on the entry table, there's some on the back table. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you uh, today. Um, If you were to go up to any random person in our city, uh, Christian or non-Christian, and say to them, hey, have you ever heard about the Daniel in the Bible? Uh, Probably guarantee you that they would pull the, the story of this, Daniel in the lion's den. They'd be like, oh, you know, oh, you mean Daniel in the lion's den. You know, I bet you that that's probably what everybody would pull from their memory. I mean, this is a, probably the easily the most famous story in the book of Daniel and maybe even one of the most famous stories in the Bible altogether. And that's what we come to tonight. It's the most popular, well-known story in our book. And this is the last chapter in the book before we transition into the final four visions or prophecies within Daniel. And so some of you are getting bummed out because you like the stories, and some of you are getting really excited because you like the prophecies. And so we'll be working our way through some of those, uh, through all of them actually, in the days ahead. I do wonder if you ever find yourself uh, growing weary. Ever? Yeah. Got some chuckles. That's good, yeah. Faint-hearted even. And so you begin to think, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to make it. I just maybe through the season that you're in, through the, the thing that's bringing you so much pain or frustration, and so you have this, this faint heart within you, and you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to make it through. And if you think about what most often happens in our lives when we're feeling that way is we want to give up. We want to make some changes, don't we? And so we begin to assess what kinds of things should we change. And so some of us might even say things like, I need to change my schedule. I've overcommitted myself. Or I need to change this habit. It's just really not helpful in my life. Or maybe you've gone so far as to say, I need to change my job. Or maybe you would even go deeper than that in places that you wouldn't want to openly maybe just confess publicly, but you've even had thoughts like, I need to change my marriage. Not just like personal growth type change ways, but you've even thought, I need a new one. Or maybe you've even said things at different points in your life, or maybe you're even saying this now, I need to change my church. I need to change my church. We look for our circumstances to change when we begin to grow faint. How are we going to get through it? And that's just all these kind of seasons of our lives. But let's think about like eternal life, right? I mean, we've even had these days before when we consider our lives as a whole, even into eternity. We begin to ask questions like, how in the world will I endure to the end? Like the end, the end. Uh, I've I've considered this before. Um, Even when uh, I was in college and really my life changed, um, I remember someone put in my hands that old book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you begin to read about people's stories and lives that um, faithfully followed Christ, and then they reach this point in their life where they say you either need to deny Christ and live, or if you continue to pledge your allegiance to Christ, you will die. And it details in pretty sobering ways just how many people have lost their lives and in the ways that they've lost their lives, and I remember reading books and stories like that, maybe you've done the same thing, and you begin to think in terms of, man, could I go through that? Could I endure through a moment like that? Even when it comes to the point of death, 
And so we begin to think of our lives in, in those great categories of extraordinary faithfulness, you know, to the extreme, would I die for Jesus? But what's interesting about Daniel is he does have that sort of looking death in the face moment in our chapter. But what's interesting about Daniel is that he really caused us to ask the question, am I faithful even in the ordinary moments? Am I faithful just in the ordinary moments of my life? See, today we see this incredi- in this incredibly popular story, a story of ordinary faithfulness that actually leads to extraordinary faithfulness. And it's a story that's written to help us endure. It's written to help us endure. And so this is what it's saying to us. It's telling us that in order to faithfully make it to the end, guys, you and I need to unwaveringly Fix our eyes on the only one who can deliver you. That's what the story is showing us. That to faithfully make it to the end, you need to unwaveringly fix your eyes on the only one who can actually deliver you. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see that ordinary faithfulness should be marked by integrity. We see that in verses 1 through 9. We also see that ordinary faithfulness will cost you. We see that in verses 10 through 18. And then lastly, we see the only way to faithfully endure is by fixing our eyes on the Lion King. And I don't mean Simba, all right? Sorry to disappoint you. Okay, so one through nine, ordinary faithfulness should be marked by integrity. Let's read these nine verses together. We read it, please Darius, the king of Persia, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So what we have here is Darius. He's now the new king on the scene. We saw at the end of last week when Belshazzar uh, fell, so did the kingdom of Babylon. And so now we have this Mede-Persian kingdom ruling, and Darius is the king. And he's sought to organize his kingdom by setting up 120 satraps, which was a Persian way of saying basically governors who rule provinces. And then he placed three other governors, or my older English uh, standard translation says presidents over them. So you have these three types of presidents over these provincial governors. And he did this, we're told, so that the king would suffer no loss. Basically, he's trying to minimize conflict and corruption 
in his kingdom. So Daniel is one of these three presidents, and Daniel, we're told, is far superior than all the other satraps and presidents. Why? Because of this excellent spirit that was in him. So don't miss this. Daniel is climbing the ranks in society. There's a new kingdom in town, and Daniel, the exile from Judah, is Darius's favorite. Right? He's about to get a promotion to basically second in the kingdom under Darius. Why? Well, we assume because of all the content here that he can trust Daniel. He, he knows he can trust Daniel. So we're led to think that out of envy, all these other leaders, what are they doing in verse 4? They're seeking to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So just his everyday life. They want to disqualify Daniel. So they go and do their digging, right? They try to dig up some stuff on this guy, some dirt, and they can't find any. He's faithful, we're told there's no error or fault found in him. Daniel is blameless. Now, we aren't meant to take the, from this that Daniel was perfect, but when it came to his regular living and practice in his life, he was exemplary. So there wasn't anything in Daniel's life that he did that was consistently sketchy. He was like, man, you got this thing in your life that you're always doing, right? These guys hate Daniel, but they can't find a reason why. It's, it's basically like if you were to go up to them and ask them, like, well, why do you hate Daniel? They'd be like, I don't know. I mean, look at him, right? Look at him. He's so nice, right? I just, I hate him, right? He, the king likes him, I guess. I don't know. He's kind of like the Tom Brady of Persia, you know? You're like, you hate Tom Brady. Why? I don't know. He's nice and good at football, you know? And it's just kind of like that, right? There's no fault found in him, right? Which I'm not a huge Brady fan, by the way, but whatever. So they're setting to trap this guy. They can't find anything on him. And they say, hey, if we can't find any error in him, then hey, let's, let's figure out a way to create an error. Right? How are we going to do it? We'll have to do it in the law of his God. I mean, how fascinating is this? They are so certain that Daniel will be faithful to his God, that they come by way of agreement. So this, it's, it's at least 122 people, right? And they deceive Darius because they say, all of us have come to this agreement. Well, what about Daniel? Daniel was kind of left out. So not all, but that's what they say in verse 6, if you look there. They all come to Darius, and they know that if they can create a law that will tell Daniel that he would have to sin against his God, Daniel won't do it. And so verses 7 through 9 lay out for us this new edict that no one can pray, no one can petition any god or man except King Darius for 30 days. And if you break that, you're going to be fed to the lions. That's an appropriate punishment, sounds like, right? No, more, pretty dramatic. See, Darius, like many others, we imagine people like us even, you know, these people come to him and go, we just want everyone to petition you, oh great king. I mean, wouldn't this kind of feed and fuel your desire for approval and praise? I mean, to know that you're special, right? So he says, this sounds good to me. I like this law. And he signs the document and the injunction. That's, that's what verse 9 says. So this, this wicked plot of these jealous men, you guys, what is it doing? It's serving as this black backdrop to display the shiny jewel of Daniel's integrity. His character sparkles here. And I, there needs to be a recovery of this today. Faithfulness, you guys, without character isn't faithfulness. 
truth divorced from character doesn't line up with truth. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy doesn't make God smile. I think we've been reminded of this maybe more than usual lately when we've seen gifted teachers, people who've written books, traveled the world and spoken true and glorious realities yet have been completely and utterly disqualified and ruined their witness for Christ because of their character. An easy one we think of maybe is Ravi Zacharias. Right, that's difficult. There's a list of many, many other people. And this is how Christians are often even depicted. I mean, in the television show The Office, right, you have Angela, who's the lone Christian in the office, and she is the most rude and prideful and self-righteous person, right? But she thinks she's a good Christian, basically. But if you ask all of her office mates, can you find any dirt on Angela, they wouldn't be able to come to you and say, I can't find anything. And what about us, right? When we think of what it means to live faithfully at the margins of our society as Christians, do our minds first run to our character? We're like, man, how do I navigate life right now? Do I think about character? Does, do our, does our desire to be people of the truth incorporate all of the truth of God's word that has a lot to say about how we are to live and who it is that we represent? The church is called the temple of God. We are to be marked by the holiness of God. We should be dripping with the character of Christ. So ordinary faithfulness should be marked with integrity. That's what we see here. And then verses 10 through 18, we see ordinary faithfulness will cost you. Let's read verse 10 together. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So something significant is happening here. Verse 10 says that when he knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had these windows open in his upper chamber that he would pray through them looking out at Jerusalem. So he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And we're told this is just as he's done previously which is significant. This is how they could trap him. They're like, Daniel always does this. This is who Daniel is. This is very interesting because notice, again, that this law was for 30 days. So maybe if you're Daniel, there's a few different ways you might be thinking about this, right? You might think, well, I always go and pray at the window. Maybe for the next 30 days, I'll be a little bit more private about it. Or maybe Daniel could think, I just won't pray for 30 days. But on the 31st day, I'll pray all day. I'll fast all day. Better yet, I'll fast and pray all week. I'll make up for it, right? Maybe I'll do that. Or just think, he's a high-ranking official. He's like Darius' favorite guy. Don't you think he could go in and maybe negotiate a deal with the king who really likes him? Or maybe he thinks, you know what? I'm going to stand up for my faith, right? I'm going to go right out in front of the palace and I'm going to get down on my knees, and I'm going to defiantly, in a demonstrative sort of way, pray to rebel against this law. But what does he do? The text tells you, and it wants you to know this, he doesn't start praying. He keeps praying. 
It tells you that Daniel just keeps praying. He just keeps doing what he's always done. And there's a few things that are helpful to note here in verse 10. First of all is that he knows that he isn't following the new edict of the land. That's what verse 10 is showing you. This is like the fiery furnace of chapter 3. He's basically saying, I'm not going to pray and petition Darius because Darius isn't God. So there's a clear line here for Daniel that's been crossed, and he's not going to cross it. So this is a great reminder that there are and could be things in our land, in our society, that people would call us to do that, in fact, would actually result in us neglecting the things that God has told us never to neglect. And what's number one? Communing with him. Communing with our God. I mean, this is one clear way that you know that you have been swept away by society, by the culture, by false gods. You'll know it if it's affecting your communing with God. Right? So, so we, we can even ask here, has the last year, has the last two years of all the cultural upheaval that, that we've gone through, has it caused you to commune more with God? Or just the same with God? Has it caused you to do what he's doing here? Bow down and give thanks to God. What does it say? He gave thanks before his God. He hears it's been signed. He goes in. Thank you, God. Or has our communing with God waned significantly? If you've been pulled away from God, you can be sure that you've been bowing down and worshiping something else. You can be sure that you've been placing your hope in something else. Second thing, though, I think that verse 10 is showing us here is that this wasn't a new practice of Daniel. I've said it before, but it's worth noting that Daniel didn't wait until he was in a pinch or where things got really bad before he began to seek the Lord and develop a prayer life. He had developed a life of communion with God through prayer, and so when things got bad, nothing changed. It's really fascinating. So let's let's be an encouragement to us to develop a prayer life today and not just when things get really bad. So he prays three times a day as what? A habit. There was no law. There was no command of God for him to do this. He's not legalistic about it, right? It's just showing you Daniel's pattern. This is what Daniel does. He prays three times a day. And think about it. He's not even a pastor, right? He doesn't just work one day a week. And the rest of the week, you're like, what do those people even do, right? They have all this time in the world to pray. Like, he's not even a pastor. He has a real job, right? He's got a real job. He's not a pastor, Right, and so think about it. Besides being a real job, he has a high-ranking job in the government. He's important. Yet he carves out time to meet with his God. Guys, we often think of prayer as something that needs to happen spontaneously, and wouldn't that be great? But, but things in life are, don't just happen spontaneously. They, they happen through discipline. Like you can often watch a musician uh, just spontaneously play something. You're like in awe of it. But, but you know that that musician wasn't able to do that without a lot of discipline. Or you watch an athlete do some spontaneous thing on the field, and you're like, wow, that was such an athletic move. But they've disciplined themselves for years to be able to do something like that. I don't wake up and spontaneously run eight miles, right? Because you have to discipline yourself to do that. You don't even spontaneously plan dates, whether you're dating or dating your spouse even. Right? You plan those things because you know you don't just walk home and go, Let's do it. All right, let's go out. Right, we plan these things, right? So we, we, we need to have this sort of discipline developed in our life, even like we see here in Daniel. But third, 
He's doing what God's word has called him to do. This is important to see. Solomon, actually, when he dedicated the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he called God's people to turn and pray towards this place, he says, towards the temple. You can read about it in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. He says, listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And fascinatingly, uh, just 16 verses later from, from verse 30, Solomon describes what God's people should do if, in fact, they were ever exiled. If they sinned and God was angry with them and had them carried away by foreign lands, into foreign lands. That's exactly what's happened for Daniel. And when they've been exiled, he tells them to pray towards their land, to, for, to repent, to ask for forgiveness. And when they pray towards their land, that God would have compassion on them. So if you look at it that way, Solomon is instructing Daniel in his specific situation. Daniel knows the Bible and it's authoritative in his life, even in the direction that he prays. So guys, what is striking in Daniel's ordinary faithfulness is his ordinary faithfulness. And it's instructive for us because it's costly for him. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. What happens next? These men came by agreement, found Daniel making the petition, plea before their God. And they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? Anyone who makes petition to any god or man with, within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, well, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. So they caught him. They caught him. The only accusation that stuck against Daniel was that he would not stop worshiping his God. How amazing would that be if that were true of us? The only accusation that could stick is that. This is not a happy thing to King Darius, because notice in verse 14, when he hears these words, he didn't feel anger or frustration. He didn't even feel insulted, it doesn't seem. He was in much distress, and what does he do? Does he set his mind to punish Daniel? No, he, he said to deliver Daniel. It says, when he heard these words, much, was much distressed, set his mind to deliver Daniel, which is a really key word now. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue Daniel. That's our other key word now. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. So even though Darius was tricked, he was trapped, he's still just. He says, yeah, that is the law. So the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. See, Darius may be king, but he comes off 
pretty weak right here. He's easily manipulated, isn't he? David Helm says, the man who had allowed himself to command that he be treated as a god now has to hope that the god of a conquered people will do what he cannot. May your God deliver you. It's a plea. I mean, what a sight. That's what he says. I mean, Daniel's last words before the thing is, is the stone is laid on his den. May your God, whom you continually serve, deliver you. There is no earthly hope for Daniel. None at all. Guys, this is important for us because this is going to show us that there is going to come times in our lives, if you, with an ordinary faithfulness, follow God in this world, there is going to come times in your life where you will have to decide, will I honor and worship and follow my God, or will I submit to some ruler or authority over me that's telling me to sin against my God, that's telling me to not commune with my God, that's telling me to do something that I know God doesn't want me to do. And this can happen in a myriad of ways. But here's the big question of Daniel. It's not just that that moment will come, right? But will that moment and my decisions in that moment make sense of all the other smaller hidden moments in my life? When I get to that extraordinary moment of faithfulness, will what I do in that moment make sense of all the other smaller hidden moments of my life, of the ordinary faithfulness kind of stuff. See, ordinary faithfulness will cost you. There's a helpful book I read this year. I feel like we need more of these books. Um, It's called Gospel Bound, Living with a Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. Um, It's by Colin Hansen and Sarah Zilstra, and they just literally tell stories of what God's doing all over the world. And they have a chapter in there called Suffer with Joy, where they've gone and they've interviewed all these Chinese Christians, Chinese pastors. And in the Cultural Revolution in China in the 60s and 70s, Christians, they were able just to hold small worship services behind closed curtains. They smuggled in scriptures. When they sang, they had to whisper. And when they left, they would leave in a staggered way. So they would have to be like, okay, you go and I'll wait and then I'll leave, right? So we all don't leave together. When they wanted to get baptized, You can think about this when we talk about baptism class, right? They had to get baptized in the middle of the night in a river. They hid their Bibles in their mattresses, and if they got caught, they went to jail. But then during the 90s and and 2000s, as trade increased and even people could go across the border a little bit more often, things began to loosen up a little bit more in China, began to open up a little bit more. And uh, because in the minds of so many of the older people in China, because suffering had become such a hallmark, of their faith. That's all they've known. Zister writes about how they even became concerned about the younger generation. They said, how would the next generation know they were Christians unless they were persecuted? I remember reading that to my wife, like, I'm not asking that question. I think they worried about their children's faith being untested. And so they said, should we pray for persecution to come? They they talk about this pastor, pastors who had their churches shut down, who didn't know where they were going to meet the next Sunday, and they write about how they just face that kind of stuff with joy. 
They wouldn't even say they were being persecuted. They would just say we're being pressured. That's actually what they'd say. She writes of one woman who spent a month in jail and it says, when I was released from jail, I thought that wasn't too bad. She goes, I was able to pray intensely, especially for my fellow inmates. And after we all got out, two of them came to church with me. I was full of joy. Do you see, like, ordinary faithfulness will cost you. But it should make sense of all the smaller moments of our life. There's no earthly hope for Daniel. The king knows this. So what does he do? He cancels his entertainment for the night in verse 18. He leaves his food uneaten, and he can't even fall asleep. This leads us to the last thing, you guys, that the only way that you will faithfully endure in this life, when you're faint-hearted, when you're discouraged, saying, how will I make it to the end? It's only by fixing your eyes on the Lion King. Verse 19 to 28, let's look in verse 19 together. Then at break of day, the king arose, went in haste to the den of lions. So Daniel was on trial here, sentenced to die, but in actuality, as we just saw, it's actually God who's on trial here. Is Daniel's God a living, powerful, delivering God? Can he deliver Daniel from death? And in verse 19, what do we see? We see Darius sprint at the break of day, which kings don't run, but he's sprinting at the break of day to the pit. Don't miss how weird this is. He just rolled a stone, sealed it, threw Daniel down to lions, and he wakes up the next day wondering, is he alive? There's a hint of Darius's faith here, actually. Then in verses 20 through 22, when Darius arrives, he cries out in this question. But it's the question he proclaimed over Daniel as Daniel's last words were even heard. What does he hear? O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lion's den? What does he hear? The roar of a lion or the voice of Daniel? Well, guys, as Darius is awake and fasting all night, while Daniel is seemingly at peace in the den, he is at peace because why? Well, it turns out that just like Darius, the lions were fasting too. Right? O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad. It's the opposite of his distress. He commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up in the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he trusted his God. Why is Daniel delivered? We're told it's because of his blamelessness. Why is he delivered? We're told it's because he trusted in his God. This is the reason we are giving, given here. As I know this story is familiar, but, but really caution yourselves about yawning at the wonder of this. I mean, if this was like a documentary and you could see it unfold before your eyes, if, if you were in this situation alone, I mean, you would be left with your jaw on the floor just wondering, How? I mean, how? I mean, this would be so certain to happen. How is this even real? Well, perception isn't always reality when it comes to God. Daniel is delivered, but this deliverance is followed by two different reversal of fortunes. Look in verse 24. What happens there? The men who disdain Daniel and his God are not protected from Daniel's God. The sentence that they wished for Daniel now became their own, and they're thrown in, we're told, with their wives and children, and they are killed before they even reach the bottom. 
And you're meant to see the quickness of the death there versus how Daniel was there for a whole night and not even harmed. So to be clear, I mean, these kinds of verses about collective punishment by death, including women and children, they are not easy to understand. It is important to notice, though, that King Darius is the one who commands that they be fed to the lions. And this practice was very normal. This was the law of the land in Persia. If you had sinned or offended the king in some way, not only you, but your whole family would be punished. This would actually go against what Deuteronomy tells us about how um, this wouldn't be the case in God's kingdom. Unless there was complicity in the family, the family wouldn't be judged. You read about that in in Deuteronomy 24. So this doesn't make the statement any easier to our modern ears, but it is important to see that we are being warned Warned in a very graphic way. We are warned against rejecting Daniel's God. For there is no hope in deliverance outside of him. Notice what this deliverance also did to Darius. I mean, this is the second great reversal. I mean, initially he wrote into law that only people could pray to him for 30 days. Now Darius sees that Daniel's God is a living God. So Darius goes on to declare in verse 25 what? He wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. That's everybody. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. All nations are called to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? We have this great song. For he is the living God. Enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. How do you live ordinary faithful life at the margin in an enduring way? Well, it's by singing this song like a mantra in your heart while you live in East County. I mean, who can deliver? There is no one who can deliver. There is no earthly hope, but our God can. Do you believe that? Do you believe what this song is calling us to sing? As we, we are meant to see ourselves in Daniel, I think it's natural. We're meant to imitate his faith. Yet as we see Daniel, if we're just being honest for a second, we don't really feel very much like Daniel, do we? I mean, here's a man who has no fault in him except for the fault of never ceasing to worship his God. I mean, how many of us are just guilty of that? Here we are, a people with, with many faults. I mean, Daniel doesn't deserve the tomb of the lion's den, yet we all will rightly face the tomb of our own making, not because we won't stop worshiping God, but because we so often worship other things instead. We're actually very much unlike Daniel, aren't we? But there is someone who was even truer than Daniel, and believe it or not, that's what this story is actually pointing us towards. It's fascinating. I'm not sure if we'll have this on the screen or not. No? Oh, wow, Rachel, you're the best. 
But there's so many parallels that are meant to draw our attention to Jesus. It's as if Daniel in the New Testament picks up a football, throws it into the New Testament, and Jesus catches it. We see Daniel has an excellent spirit within him, but we see Jesus has the Holy Spirit within him, and he is said to be the wisdom of God. We see in Daniel that no fault is in him, but yet we see the same is true in Jesus, that no fault is in him as well, as Pontius Pilate declares. We see in Daniel there's a conspiracy against him, yet he holds his integrity. We see this in Jesus. He is conspired against by the Sanhedrin, yet he has his integrity. We hear that Daniel, once he hears that this fate is going to be his, he goes and he prays, just like he always has. That Jesus, knowing his night has come, this conspiracy is about to unfold, what does he do? He goes into the garden and he prays, just like he always has. We see Daniel let down by a weak ruler, Darius. We see Jesus, the same thing happens to him in Pilate. We see Daniel needing to be saved from the lion's den, and yet we have Jesus cry out Psalm 22 on the cross, which begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read that psalm, you see all these things being fulfilled at the cross, and one of those pleadings is for to be saved from the lion's. We have a stone laid over the den and sealed. We see a stone laid over Jesus' tomb and sealed. We see at break of day, Darius runs to the tomb, and we hear that after Mary goes and sees, she goes and tells the disciples, and Peter and John have a foot race. But here's where it breaks. Daniel was never harmed. And he was taken up from the den. But we know Jesus was definitely harmed. We're told he was pierced. He bled. He had wounds. He breathed his last. The blood and water flowed. But he too was taken up. But not because he wasn't harmed, it's because he had risen. Why was Daniel not harmed? It's because he was found blameless before God. Why could the grave not hold the Son of God? Because he was blameless. If the grave could talk, the grave would say to Jesus, you don't belong here. This is the place of guilty people. So he had to rise. My friends, Jesus is the lamb that was slain, and now he is risen, and the image of him risen is the image of a lion. He's the promised lion of the tribe of Judah, the same tribe that we know that Daniel has come from. He's the one in Revelation that when John sees him, it's like, oh, there's the slain lamb, and if you blink, oh, that's the lion. How remarkable is this? He's the one who actually endured. I'll just say, it's my favorite painting, right? I don't know a lot of paintings, but this one has to be it, okay? It's a painting that's now in France by Eugene Bernard. It's called uh, The Disciples, Peter and John Running the Sepulchre on the Morning of the Resurrection. I love it. I love the wonder in this painting. I love the worship. I love the haste. It's kind of like Darius. 
This painting depicts what the heart of every person who knows that the cross was supposed to be their cross, that the tomb was supposed to be their tomb, that those lions were meant for them. And when they get there, what does the angel say? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. As do you see, ordinary, costly faithfulness to God only makes sense and is only possible to joyfully live out at the margins when you fix your eyes on the fact that God's faithfulness cost him. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship a living Jesus. We don't worship a dead God dressed up as a man. We worship the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to no end. We worship the God who delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. We worship him who has not only saved Daniel, but has saved us from the power of the lions of death when no earthly help could come our way. So how does this story help you to live faithfully at the margins? Well, it helps us endure. How? By fixing our eyes on the one who endured. And that's exactly how this passage is applied in the New Testament. I mean, we look at Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about all these people who went through all this stuff and faithfully following their God, wondering, how will I make it to the end? And it says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Others, verse 36, suffered mocking and flogging even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains. That's language of exile, in dens, in caves of the earth. How could people do that? Well, you know this one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by Daniels, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He wasn't delivered from death, but through death, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How does Hebrews apply this? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You ever feel faint-hearted? You ever wonder how you're going to make it? with ordinary, predictable faithfulness, marked with integrity, counting the cost with joy? Well, it's only as you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wondrous face that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. He entered the cross. You keep your eyes on him. You'll make it. Let's all stand together as we pray. Lord Jesus, we do come to you tonight as our risen king. We look to you, and we are so grateful, Lord, although it's so humbling to know that you experienced death for us. And we pray that by beholding you tonight, even in the elements of communion, as we consider you, the lamb that was slain, risen as the lion, that by beholding what you've done for us tonight, that you would cause us to endure. You would fuel us to endure, that we would fix our eyes upon you and not our circumstances. That we would be a church marked with integrity. And that we would be faithful in all the ordinary hidden things of our lives. We thank you for your word. We just pray that it would accomplish its purposes in our life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.